Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going? Amy, things are going well here. Uh, just a quick update. I know I talked about it a little bit last week on the podcast. Uh, my mom's doing a lot better after her mild stroke, so that was good news. But uh, things are fine here in Nashville, but more importantly, how are they in Japan? And, and I guess most importantly, how was that brulee donut? I saw that on Twitter. I, I can't wait to hear more. Yes, well, uh, I think my life um, was changed by the brulee donut that I had, and I, I I posted a picture on Instagram. It was pretty phenomenal. So I've gotten a little pushback because folks have said to me, hey, you can find a brulee donut in America. People have sent me um, a number of different places, but just to clarify... I am a very loyal Krispy Kreme fan. Nothing wrong with that. Now, I love other donut places, but I just, I, I, I like yeast donuts. I just love them. And I, I just love Krispy Kreme. And I like to go to Krispy Kreme if I can when I am in other countries because there are spe- usually donuts that are specific to those countries. I didn't know that. That might do great in America, but they are just, you know, the, they're just done for those places. They're sold in those places. So when I saw Krispy Kreme the other day, I said, I've got to go and check out what special donuts they have. And they had a brulee glazed custard donut. Oh, my word. And and I love their custard because my favorite is the chocolate ice custard. Same. And I love creme brulee. So I thought this has got to be good. Yes. And oh, was it ever. It was the best donut I've ever had. It's my favorite Krispy Kreme donut. So now I'm begging them to please, please bring that, uh, bring that home. I'll sign on to that. So to my, uh, I'm I'm loyal to my North Carolina company, but I've been a fan since I was a little girl in Nashville, um, and I'd love to see the brulee glazed custard donut. Uh, make it stateside, but uh, I've already had two here. Who knows? I may have another one. Oh. Um, but that's not the only thing that has been just life changing here. This has been an incredible trip. At the time that we're recording this, I've still got uh, there are a few days left on the trip, and it's it's an interesting blend of, you know, certainly you're homesick and and ready to to see your your own bed and things like that, but at the same time. This place is just captivating, and I, uh, you know, in some ways I can't get enough of it, of learning more about it. But also what's been phenomenal, and, and the more I understand uh, the work that the International Mission Board is doing here, the more I'm just amazed. We got to talk to some leaders uh, here in Tokyo and, and Japan, uh, IMB missionaries at all different levels who work here. And just to begin understanding the monumental task that they have, Japan has sort of the unique place in the work that is done in Asia in that it is not a closed country. Our missionaries are here on missionary visas. They are doing their work openly. Uh, they are working with churches that are are uh, based here in Japan and are are working very hard but while it is an open country it is a closed country in the sense that the culture is very closed um to hearing the gospel and uh it, there are just some real 
uh, unique things about Japanese culture that make it very difficult to break through. And so what's happening is that they are able to freely do their work, but uh, as they freely do it, they come up against a number of barriers that uh, are just deep-seated in uh, in Japan. And so the work they're doing is so hard. Uh, they're putting in tremendous effort and, and beginning to make inroads. I was talking to a new friend I made uh, here who actually is not an IMB missionary. It's uh, someone who, who lives here. And she was talking about how when she first... Uh, came to Japan. Uh, she's only lived here a, f- a few years. She's from another country in Asia. Then when she first visited Japan about 10 years ago, uh, that she could not ever encounter churches. And now, uh, she sees many, many more. Uh, so it's, it is a, a large task only. I believe I heard only 1%, um, are, believers in Christ. So it's a massive monumental task with millions and millions of people, but there, there is work being done. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of uh, prayer walking. We've been doing some mapping, uh, particularly in anticipation of how the Olympics will affect uh, the Tokyo area in a couple of years. And we've also been doing some outreach with uh, churches here. So it's been a, a very busy week, still uh, some busy time. We've had a time with uh, with our family. Our kids are with us. They've been part of the work as well. They've been mapping. They've been praying. They have been part of outreach. Um, so we've gotten a little bit of time with them. We've had tremendous food, and we made some, uh, some lifelong friends. So I'm really eager to come back whenever I, I'm, I'm able one thing that's fascinating to see in that you get a real sense the longer you're here of how tough it is and how much people need hope. Um, there's, there is a, a there, there are several levels where you can get a real sense of uh, despair in some situations or just a sense of um, pl- just misplaced hope or people looking for hope, but it's an incredibly beautiful society and you just see a ton of creativity, uh, a lot of amazing things around you. And so it's, it's kind of fascinating to see people who in their gifts and abilities and their, uh, their creative ways really reflecting as image bearers, but they don't know why they don't know the hope that is before them. They're looking for it though. And we really see that the longer we're here. So, uh, this has opened our eyes to the needs of Japan and um, maybe some of our listeners will get opportunities to, to come this way sometime. I hope I'm able to come back. All right. Well, that sounds incredible. And uh, we're going to jump into the news this week. And uh, first of all, do want to thank our sponsor, the Southern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary located in Louisville, Kentucky. They are training future gospel leaders, pastors, and missionaries. And uh, you can find out more about all the degree programs, undergraduate and graduate doctoral degree programs over at Southern Seminary by visiting sbts.edu. That's sbts.edu. And we're going to jump into it. It's uh, been kind of a rough week for the IMB this week. And uh, there's some news out of the IMB about uh, a data breach. We had first heard about this from our good friend over at the Biblical Recorder, Seth Brown. Uh, They posted a piece last week 
about this uh, affecting. We're, we're st- I don't know if they still have a, a number on how many uh, people have been affected by this data breach, but uh, hundreds of thousands is, is possibly just a, a kind of a scary, I guess, moment for that uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. Yeah, this story uh, was certainly a little unnerving, uh, as it as it would be for anyone. But also, I think just a sign of the times that we're in. Uh, so, you know, Seth, uh, Seth does just some incredible work at the Biblical Recorder and the way a very good writer and just really, really thorough. We appreciate his work on this. I don't know about you, but I imagine there are not many left who haven't had some connection with a data breach of some sort. I mean, goodness, anybody who shopped at Target had concern about that uh, in a, f- a few years ago. So because we're just living in this technological age, I guess there are good good things and bad things. I mean, we all do everything on our smartphones and we uh, pay for things online. We give to our churches online. We do all these things. And every time we do that, we're submitting information about ourselves that lives out there. Um, and is very vulnerable. So it looks like uh, the IMB is really trying to work to set up the right levels of security on that, uh, but certainly just difficult and I'm sure really rattled those who learned about it. So if any other developments can come in that, we'll, we'll stay on top of it. But I would imagine the IT uh, folks in Richmond are uh, having no rest for the weary right now, making sure they uh, tighten everything. Yeah, I totally agree on that. And uh, it would be nice if uh, there wasn't any further incidents with this data. So, uh, But that's not the only thing that we've got from the IMB. We have kind of a follow-up from last week in the uh, Mark Aderholt case. Uh, there was a, a, a couple of releases this past week about some more information uh, on that story that we discussed last week. This story continues to be really difficult, uh, probably one of the more difficult ones of this type that we have uh, have talked about, certainly in the in the top two or three. With the criminal investigation happening now, I'm sure this is not the last uh, thing that we'll be reporting about it. But uh, it certainly, certainly just shows how serious this issue is. And, and as we continue to examine things like this, I think we just have to recognize, um, I don't know, you know, we, we talked a long time ago when a, a lot of the uh, Me Too cases were beginning to happen. And we talked about how statistically, just because of how many uh, people there were of how many evangelicals there were, you know, millions and millions, and even how many Southern Baptists there were, uh, that this had to be in the church, um, just statistically, because there had to be a percentage of cases that were happening. And I remember us saying that, but having a hard time imagining uh, real, real things popping up. And, and here we are, you know, we're there. Uh, and as we talked about last week, just the, the pain of these stories and how we don't want to talk about this. We don't want to know that it's out there. We want it, uh, to, to be over or we, we want to not, uh, have to face it. But at the same time, these things don't need to stay in the dark. Certainly with there being some 
different perspectives on this story. I think this is an ongoing conversation, uh, and we we don't want to shy away from discussing what needs to be discussed. Uh, but we want to just but but we want to speak plainly about it. So yeah, and that wasn't the only uh, response to this. There was an open letter from the South Carolina Southern Baptists, uh, the executive board chairman Tommy Kelly, and the South Carolina Baptist Convention president Marshall Blaylock issued an open letter. Uh, this past week about this, kind of explaining South Carolina Baptist Convention's involvement in that uh, they they did say that, you know, Dr. Hollingsworth, the executive director, for the first time became aware of this on social media uh, when this happened back, you know, a couple of months ago, whenever it first broke online. So uh, something that he was completely unaware of while having Mark Aderholt on his staff, both in Arkansas and in South Carolina. So uh, obviously news to him. He just discussed that in the open letter. Uh, so I, I encourage you to go read it. One of the best responses we've seen from this, uh, I, I commend uh, President Blaylock and uh, Chairman uh, Kelly for this uh, the statement that they put out this week. It's good for these things to come into the light. And that's that was one thing that I really did appreciate about this statement in the Baptist Courier Um you know, I don't know uh, Tommy Kelly, but I met uh, Marshall Blaylock for the first time this year in Dallas. And uh, Keith has known him for a while, has tremendous respect for him. I have heard nothing but uh, just incredible things about him for the last few years. And this uh, this letter reflects the same. So just real, real openness. And it's it's hard to talk about these things. But we have to be willing to just address them uh, straightforwardly. And so that's that's uh, what they've had to do because this is someone uh, from their state association. And so they they couldn't shy away from it. Uh, But a lot of uh, a lot of really painful discussions happening now. Uh, We'll keep an eye on this. uh, This is obviously not the last we've heard of this. And it also leads to a larger discussion uh, within our seminaries, uh, you know, with everything that happened with Dr. Patterson. Uh, last a couple of months ago, back in May, uh, and his removal at Southwestern. Uh, this story this week and Baptist Press uh, about the seminaries and handling those uh, type of issues on campus. Uh, there's a story that uh, talks about how Me Too is a wake up call for the church, and uh, I know Dr. Aiken was featured in this, Amy. Uh, so tell us about this. Yeah, this is a really thorough story, and I, I was eager to hear. I knew that this interview uh, had happened with Dr. Aiken. So I knew that the story would uh, show up in Baptist Press very shortly. And uh, it's it's really interesting to see how I, I think our institutions all and, and you see different levels in, in how they uh, have shared what they do. They've all known the importance of having particular policies in place of addressing things. But I I do think there's a sense in which all of us are beginning to understand how you we just cannot get this wrong and that it really has to become part of training. It's not just about employee policies. It's not just about student policies for while they are on campus. It's actually about uh, preparation for ministry because uh, these students coming through our classrooms are going to, to deal with this when they get out on the front lines. And just as we prepare them for practical ministry, as we prepare them for just all different aspects of uh, of what they will do, 
we have to prepare them for a world and a culture that is really, really facing this. And in some ways, uh, a world and a culture that that had this under the surface all this time, but maybe we didn't realize how prevalent it was and how much our pastors and ministers and just uh, everyone out there um, needed to be ready to, to deal with this. So I think it's good to see and understand what our institutions are doing um, for this. And I'm sure that that they will uh, continue uh, to just be vigilant in this area. We got some retirement news this week, Amy. Uh, Randall O'Brien, who's been the president of Carson Newman, uh, he he was the 22nd president uh, and just celebrated his 10th anniversary at the school. He announced that he will be retiring at the end of the year. Yeah, so congratulations to uh, Dr. O'Brien um, on his retirement coming up and passing 10 years as well. So I'm sure a lot of contributions during that time. That's a, a campus in a really beautiful area of Tennessee. All right, Amy, uh, some more things that are going away. Sullivan Tower, where I used to work here at Lifeway, uh, the old campus. Uh, we Remember, we covered the demolition and implosion of Draper Tower back in January. That happened on January 6th earlier this year. Now, tomorrow, uh, Sullivan Tower is going to be imploded and come to the ground. Oh, man, I saw this this week. I think I can't remember if I saw it on Baptist Press uh, that like just on the website first or if I saw it come through on Twitter uh, from from them. Uh, but I knew I knew this was a possibility, but I wasn't uh, wasn't sure if it would happen or not. Sullivan Tower gets me in a way that, you know, Draper Tower. So Draper Tower was just amazing to watch. Uh, when we watched it live from the house, uh, you know, as it was streaming, because it was just a big deal and it's kind of, you know, had was this major building in the Nashville skyline. But Sullivan Tower is where um, I, I worked when I first was at Lifeway. And so I was there on the eighth floor. And then uh, then I was on the the like West Wing, the the entrance level for a little while the at the plaza. But I did have an I guess a work area up on the tenth floor when the team was up there. And so Sullivan Tower is where I spent a lot of time and, you know, had this view of the city that I just loved. So that's gonna be kinda sad. And I know you were in Sullivan Tower as well. So if that one gets live streamed, uh it'll be really weird to watch truly an end of an era now. Yeah, I'm hoping that we'll be live streamed and I'm thinking about taking the kids downtown. If we can go downtown and stand maybe on the uh, the walk over at the Renaissance or maybe in the library uh, parking garage, somewhere like that. So we may try to run down there in the morning and watch that. The kids would love that. So uh, it should be uh, fascinating to watch that happen. So finally this week, uh, we do want to talk about uh, some things going on down in the Virgin Islands. There's some partnerships between some uh, pastors in the U.S. Uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as some down in the Virgin Islands. So there's a lot going on to try to help them out after a lot of the hurricane stuff that went on this past year, uh, still rebuilding and, and training those pastors. So uh, a good story here in Baptist Press this week. Yeah, so much of our of the work, you know, we we talk a lot about the work in Puerto Rico, but they weren't the only ones that um, dealt with that. So really important. I'm glad that Baptist Press has called attention to this in the Virgin Islands as well, and our prayers continue to be with them. All right, well, that's going to do it for the news this week. 
Also this week, we had a chance to sit down with Hans Dilbeck. Hans uh, is the new state executive up in Oklahoma, been there just for about six months. Had a chance to talk to him about everything going on in Oklahoma, uh, about Falls Creek, something we've talked about quite a few times here on the podcast, Oklahoma Baptist University, and much more. Here's our conversation with Hans Dilbeck. Joining us today on SBC This Week is Hans Dilbeck. He is the former pastor at Quail Springs Baptist Church in Oklahoma and currently serves as the executive director of the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma. Hans, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I know that uh, you're at Falls Creek this week. Uh, we've talked a lot about that on the podcast. Uh, you've got a lot going on in, this, in the summer there. Uh, I, we'll get to that a little bit later in the interview. But, uh, you know, what's it like being there? as kind of the executive director, seeing all the ministry impact that goes on at, at such a great conference center like Falls Creek. Yeah, it's a, it's a special place uh, for us in Oklahoma and, and for me personally. I grew up in Oklahoma, and, and uh, God called me to preach by his grace and power in a very clear way here at this camp 35 years ago. Wow. And uh, so uh, I've, I've come as a student and as a sponsor and as a youth minister and pastor. I've had the privilege of preaching the camp and uh, now to be here as executive director of I've, I've, I've watched this work from a lot of different angles. So it is it's it's a different perspective, but it's a, it's a the Lord has really blessed us with Falls Creek. Now, that's great. And uh, I know you've been at the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma just a little bit over six months now. Uh, what's that transition been like for you personally going from pastoring uh, to that broader leadership role of the state convention. Yeah, it's it's been a, a huge transition for my wife and I. We've we've raised three boys and and uh, they're married now the house now, so we're empty nesters. And uh, we've both been surprised by how significant the transition is. We uh, I, I was a pastor for over thirty years, and uh, the last half of it there in Oklahoma City at Quell Springs Baptist Church, which is a great church. Uh, a lot of strength and unity and and uh, ministry in that in that congregation and uh, uh, the logistics of the transition weren't too great for us. We're in the same city, same house, but boy, we didn't realize how much of our lives were were bound up in the church and and in that Sunday to Sunday rhythm and and uh, so it's it's been challenging. But we have a clear sense of calling and uh, love love the work that God's called us to do in these churches in Oklahoma. I would say six months away uh, from being a pastor for the first time really in my adult life, uh, I'm more aware than ever of the privilege it is to shepherd the flock of God and uh, what a what a what a significant calling that is. And I, I just encourage everybody that God gives that honor to to embrace it with all their heart. Yeah, now you we talked a little bit about False Creek. You've also got Oklahoma Baptist University booming great school, uh, Baptist University there in Oklahoma. Uh, what advantages did those two institutions, and, and there are other institutions, obviously, in Oklahoma and other states, but what, what specific advantages did those two institutions in Oklahoma provide uh, to Oklahoma Baptists and Southern Baptists as, as a whole? Yeah, you you, uh, you you show a great deal of awareness by identifying those two because they, in some ways, they, they do set us apart. Uh, False Creek uh, you know, we'll have 55,000 students at False Creek over the course of this summer. Amazing. Uh, this week, there there are over 5,500 here, and um, it's a it's a it's a conference center that Oklahoma Baptists have poured a lot of resources into, uh, and uh, it's it's a significant source of the unity of our convention. You know, one of the great things about being an Oklahoma Baptist is we have we have a great 
deal of unity and camaraderie. We, we know each other and support each other. And, and a lot of it is because uh, uh, we have this common experience of False Creek. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of people saved. Last night we had 106 people saved in an invitation. And um, uh, we also have, see a lot of young people called uh, to be pastors or to be missionaries uh, over the course of a summer. And uh, it just makes a it makes a big difference for for our state. You know, I had breakfast this morning with our our collegiate ministry leaders on a couple of our directional schools here in in um, Oklahoma. And they're here this summer getting to know graduating seniors that will be on their campus in the fall. And so it, it, there's a lot of networking, a lot of great opportunity at False Creek. And of course, it also impacts the kingdom. There's a lot of people on the field with the International Mission Board right now who were called to missions uh, here at False Creek. And there are IMB people that work here in the summer and help us uh, develop that sense of calling with our students. And I'd say a similar thing about Oklahoma Baptist University. It's a solid conservative school, quality liberal arts education. Uh, and they just turn out students that make an impact in the kingdom, whether they're, they're uh physicians or research scientists or educators or missionaries or pastors and uh, uh we're, we're really proud of oklahoma baptist university yeah and you know i i don't know the specifics of it but i've been told that oklahoma or the false creek camps and everything that's one of the largest feeders into oklahoma baptist university and oklahoma baptist university is the largest uh feeder school so to speak into the imb so yeah, it's like I've, that that network that is kind of flows from Oklahoma through to the nations. Yeah, it really, really. In fact, here at False Creek, we celebrate something called the Appleby uh, Society. And, and Ms. Appleby was a uh, uh, student in the very early years of False Creek, over which started 100 years ago. And uh, she was called to missions right here and served on the field. And uh, so we, we really celebrate those students that that surrender to missions here in this campground and then and then go on serve. And everywhere you go in the world with IMB missionaries, you run into them. Yeah. And what were some of the, maybe the challenges that have, you know, having the institutions like that and kind of having to maintain them and, and keep them going, you know, in a time where CP funding is, you know, on the decline from the church perspective um, and percentage wise. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But. What are some of the challenges that you guys have in Oklahoma, uh, you know, to, to keep these things going and the, the kingdom impact that they that they are putting out? Well, it, it, I, I would say, first of all, that the advantages far outweigh the challenges. I mean, those False Creek and OBU and, and we have, like you said, we have a lot of other great institutions and, and ministries, but those are our two central focuses for us. Uh, the challenges uh, are financial challenges, you know, both both of them need need our financial support and uh it takes a great deal of wisdom and thought and prayer uh, for us as oklahoma baptists to decide uh what is the right balance of financial support uh, uh, because as we just said when we devote resources to false creek and obu we're not just devoting resources to oklahoma those two those two ministries yeah. impact the kingdom worldwide yeah. and so if they're producing if they're producing missionaries and pastors that are going around the world, then uh, we want to make sure that they're funded uh, adequately. And uh, and that's you know that's the challenge side of it that we're constantly trying to pray and get that balance right. Yeah, and, and speaking of CP, we've seen the church percentage 
uh, decline uh, to kind of a, a modern low, under 5% uh, on the average giving of churches winds up through this cooperative program. What are some ways that maybe state conventions can help reverse that decline? Uh, I do think the state conventions are the key in uh, cooperative program uh, promotion. And I would say, just while I'm bragging on Oklahoma, that that uh, our churches are still hanging in there at, at around the 9% uh, average giving. We've got, we've got strong cooperative program support with our churches. But, but I think we do have to promote it. I think more and more... I think in terms of promoting the cooperative program, first of all, missionally, we got to people make sure people understand they're giving two missions through the cooperative program. It's not just a dead end uh, fund. Uh, so missionally, uh, but also relationally, you know, people are so bombarded with slick promotion that um, sometimes it loses its punch. I think it's it 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 is always primarily about one on one pastor to pastor, leader to leader, uh, uh, telling the story of the cooperative program and having that kind of relational influence. Uh, but I also talk about cooperative program promotion as being generational and congregational. You know, we, if we promote just to the pastors, it puts a lot of pressure on the pastors. Um, uh, but if we can promote congregationally, then it, it helps the, the people in general to see the value and then I really think we've dropped the ball on that general generational promotion. We've got we got to train children and students and college students um, to to create those patterns, those priorities, those values, so that so that um, uh, ascribing value to our cooperative work is something that gets ingrained in them at, at, an, at an earlier age. And I think we did that back in the days when RAs and GAs reigned. And we're not really doing that anymore. And uh, uh, I think it's very important for the way we we teach people the value of the cooperative program. On a larger scale, you know, looking at the SBC, we're, we're really in a, a time of transition. Uh, we've, we've got a few entity head openings right now. Uh, we've got some state exec openings. I mean, you're a, you're brand new in Oklahoma after Dr. Jordan retired last year, a long-serving um, state exec. You know, Dr. White over in Georgia recently announced that he's going to be retiring. They're looking to fill that spot, uh, another long-serving. We have several uh, long-tenured uh, state execs who, you know, we just by, you know, numbers, we expect uh, some openings in the next few years uh, because of just, you know, the long tenure and the, the age of the leaders. But, you know, where do you see the SBC in this time of transition? You know, what are some challenges we have maybe in the SBC to, to, to transition well and, and maybe where you see the SBC in the next five to ten years? I do think we're in a we're in season of transition. It's generational, uh, and uh, and and some cultural changes. Uh, we're getting more diverse, and uh, there's several factors that are putting pressure on us. I, I've got to say, Jonathan, that I'm pleased with how we're responding to that. I know that there we can identify kind of trouble spots and 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 situations where we maybe we haven't uh, behaved the way we would would like to have behaved, but overall. I think we're showing some maturity and stability in the way we're navigating this, and um, uh, and and these challenges are also opportunities. I think I think that I think the more diverse we become, for example, the more we're going. It's going to drive us to be gospel-centered, and and to find our unity and our focus and cooperation on on the mission to get the gospel to the nations, and not on you know uh, not on a, some sort of a common culture. Um, 
you know, cooperation by definition means we don't agree about everything, but but there are a few priorities that make it worth working together. And uh, so I, I, I'm I'm hopeful about what the convention is going to look like five to ten years from now. We've got to show some spiritual maturity and character uh, in between now and then. And uh, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. We've got to have men and women that. Um, uh, that show love and kindness and patience and appreciation for different sides and perspectives uh, so that we can hold ourselves together uh, for the cause of getting the good news of Jesus Christ to every tribe and tongue and language. Yeah, and you mentioned the generational transition, and that kind of goes back to uh, also tied to the generational awareness of cooperative program. You know, what are some ways maybe in Oklahoma that you guys are focusing on that or making that a priority? Uh, just coming yeah. together of the generations there. No, the, I think it's interesting because the generation, you know, that is handing this work to us have done a tremendous job. I mean, I we we got so much value for those who've gone before us, and and uh, they've and and they've handed us such a great stewardship and resources, and, and that is the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but there is a generational shift, you know. I. I I, I'm kind of the, I was born in 1965. That makes me kind of either the last of the baby boomers or the first of whatever follows them. I'm right there on that scene. And, uh, and I can kind of feel that, uh, uh, that change kind of from, from both perspectives. And I think we got to value what we've been handed, but we also got to realize that, that some times are changing and, and that if we're going to reach, uh, our changing nation and and be effective in an, in this world that that uh, we've got to keep moving forward just like the generation before us did and uh you know one of the things i see happening here at false creek for example in that generational transition is is um uh we we work with middle school students with high school students we expose them to what christ might want to do in their lives in the world they're hearing about the cooperative program and our work together they're experiencing our work together here in this camp uh, but then our campus, we have we have Baptist Collegiate ministers on 32 campuses here in Oklahoma, and they're all down here over the course of the summer. And man, they're grabbing a hold of these graduating seniors that are going to be on our campus, and they're trying to to uh, pull them into adult life and and keep them uh, a vital part of our work. And and uh, you know, it takes diligence. How often do we read in the Book of Proverbs about the importance of diligence, the diligent hand? And it's just uh, uh, we've got to we've got to stay focused and stay after it and realize that that transition from one generation to the next has always been something that takes focused, intentional effort. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us today here on SBC this week. We're we're excited for everything that's going on in Oklahoma. We we've been keeping up with the 100th anniversary of Falls Creek last year, so. That's something we've been paying attention to. Amy and I both want to get out there one day. Neither one of us have been to Falls Creek, so. Hey, Lifeways, we're having we're having the the Lifeway uh, Collegiate Week here. The first part of August, we're expecting around two or three thousand college Man. students. That's the event that used to be out at Glorieta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to be here now. David Platt's preaching, and come on out for that. I'm going to try. We'll see if we can make <laughs> something happen. So. Uh, we appreciate you again taking the time. All the best in Oklahoma and beyond to you. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, John. We're going to jump into my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. All right. This time we're going to go to 1991. And uh, last week, 
this, uh, last week we talked about Southeastern. We talked about my entity. This week we're going to talk about yours because it was the Baptist Press issue of July 19th, 1991, when uh, James T. Draper Jr. was elected without opposition on July 18th. So 19th was when the press, press release went out, but elected without opposition July 18th to become the 8th president of the Southern Baptist Sunday School Board. Um, There was a roll call vote, one hour and 45 minute closed session, 75 in favor, none opposed, one abstention. So that's very interesting. So there's a really long story. It talks all about like too much. I can't even go through all that. Um, It is like three pages long almost. A um, lot of stuff to uh, to to look through, and just a very interesting story. I mean, it's just t- got a lot of quotes from different people um, talking some about you know the 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 work of the Sunday School Board and what they were expecting out of Dr. Draper. So uh, thought that would be interesting. And now you know he's still as a current leader, kind of the ambassador for. Um, the interim president of the executive committee and uh, he but he was elected first as an entity head this week in SBC history. All right, Amy, thanks for that. And uh, that's going to bring us to our resources of the week. Amy, your resource of the week is. All right. So my resource is a book. It recently came out. It's a history book called Houses Divided. Uh, Evangelical Schisms and the Crisis of the Union in Missouri. It's part of the Religion in America series by Oxford University Press. And uh, it's by Lucas Volkman. I just uh, read this for a book review that I am doing in a a journal, you know, an online journal. And uh, it's very, very interesting. It's talking about denominational and even church conflicts and how they played out. Uh, during uh, the time of the Civil War and how they impacted the division that was happening specifically in Missouri. And what's interesting and and what's meaningful there is that Missouri was a state that was very divided. Uh, Obviously, a lot of states in the Deep South, they weren't divided. They knew exactly where they were. And then states uh, in the North, pro-Union states, they knew where they were. But Missouri was very divided. So this is a very, so this is an interesting a snapshot, but what is unique about this is that a lot of people who have studied the impact of religion surrounding uh, the issue of slavery, they usually are looking at denominations like nationwide or uh, sectional, sectional um, denominationalism, you know, things like that. And he really hones in on the divisions that were local. Um, among particular churches, some court cases between churches, property disputes, things, and and he says, uh, and he and and he contends that you have to kind of narrow down. So when you say all politics is local, uh, sometimes that can also be uh, church politics as well. So he's he look he's looking at um, Baptist, Methodists, and Presbyterian churches. Of Missouri, so it's a really interesting one. If you're a history buff, go for it. Um, it is a little bit expensive, so I was able to get a copy because I was reviewing it. But maybe you can find it in your library. We'll put an Amazon link, or maybe um, a, a a reasonable copy will come up, you know, used. But uh, certainly add that on your list to check out one day. 
All right, my resource of the week is actually just going to be an article from Baptist Press about some uh, things going on over in Appalachia. In McCreary County, Kentucky, there's a story in Baptist Press this week, Crossroads Community Church, Stearns, Kentucky. They brought a 13, they bought a 13-acre site, and they're building 20 homes, and they're tiny houses, Andy. I know you love a good tiny house, uh, but they're building homes for those who are in poverty, have broken families, and, and have substance abuse addiction. So basically, they're, they're, they're helping people that don't have homes, but by building these tiny houses, like 300 to 540 square feet. But, you know, tiny houses, I mean, it's kind of a fad thing for some people. But for many, I mean, it's exactly what they need. So uh, this is just a fascinating story. I know you love a good tiny house, like I said. Uh, So I I had to get your thoughts on this. I saw this and I loved it because I think tiny houses are a perfect, perfect thing uh, to be used in, uh, in ways like this. So I love... I, I could, I would love to have a tiny house and Keith thinks I'm crazy for that. Um, but I just think they're fabulous and, uh, but I just think they're fabulous. But this, this is a really, uh, this is a really good idea. I've seen this, um, in some other, uh, in, in some other uses of uh, just homes that can be used by people who need them for a time. Uh, but it's really great to see this being done uh, by, by a church in an area. And the, there, there are a lot of challenges in Appalachia. Um, and this is the exact type of thing, I think, that, that's just a real fit. This is really understanding the community around, uh, around them. So I love to see... I love to see work like this. So that is a great, that article is a great resource. All right. That's going to do it for us this week. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Uh, we've got Amy going to be back stateside next week. Yep. I will be home. Uh, we'll be recording from North Carolina. It's very possible that the next time we record, I will be extremely jet lagged. So we'll see what I say on the next episode. I'm glad the trip's been great. Amy, we appreciate all that you and the the team from Southeastern is doing for the kingdom over there in Japan. And uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. 